sponsor, StrongDM is secure infrastructure access for the modern stack. StrongDM proxies connections between your infrastructure and sysadmins, giving your IT team auditable, policy-driven, IAC-configurable access to whatever they need, wherever they are. Find out more at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. This episode of Day 2 Cloud is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for all you amazing Day 2 Cloud listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. ITPro.tv slash Day 2 Cloud and use promo code CLOUD at checkout to save 30% off all plans. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we are talking about Google Cloud, but we're not doing it alone. We brought someone to help us. That is Richard Sroder. He's the Director of Outbound Product Management from Google Cloud, but he's not just a Googler. He spent some time in the trenches with Azure and AWS, so he brings a unique perspective to things. So what stood out to you, Ethan? That it's not all Google all the time with uh, Richard and his perspective. He brings the corporate perspective, of course, but then he makes a lot of points along the way about how the other clouds fit into things. And it just felt like a very uh, authentic conversation, right? <laughs> authentic was the keyword. I, I think authentic is the word of the day when it comes to this conversation. And stay tuned after the conversation. We have a special Tech Bytes from HashiCorp talking about console. But before that, enjoy this conversation with Richard Soroder from Google Cloud. Well, Richard, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We're super excited to talk to you. Before we get into the topic at hand, can you give us a quick background on who you are and what led you to your current position at GCP? Yeah, thanks. I'm super pumped to be here. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, so I'm Richard. I'm an outbound product manager at Google Cloud. I have never taken the same job twice in 20 plus years of working. So I don't know where to go from here. I maybe astronaut or plumber or something. I'm, I'm running out of tech jobs. But, you know, I've been a developer, architect, sales engineer, marketer, product manager, now whatever an outbound product manager is. So Google recruiters reached out about some new function they were building that seemed terrifying and awesome. So I decided to jump at that. And before that, I was a 12-time Microsoft MVP, mostly for Azure, and also I've been teaching Pluralsight courses for almost a decade now and uh, on stuff like AWS, Salesforce, and other things. So better or worse, I've been doing this cloud thing for a while. Gotcha, gotcha. And it's interesting that you've hopped around in different uh, type of positions, but all within the tech domain. So I guess we're going to have to invent something new for you. I guess that sounds like what Google did, this outbound product manager. What, what even is that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, as you say, they're all related. I'm not like going from beekeeper to .NET programmer. Like it's not completely <laughs> tangential stuff. So uh, yeah, I mean, in essence, it's really the go-to-market folks of product management. So I spend a lot of time with customers, partners, analysts, working on portfolio level product strategy, things like that. So I have a team of, of whatever, 15 or so people now at this point who kind of bang around on this topic and make sure we launch products the right way, talk to customers more, get better feedback, into our product loop. So it's honestly some of the best parts of PM and these other jobs. I'm trying not to tell my boss that because I'll never get a raise, but like <laughs> this is some of the most fun I've ever had. So Richard, you're a multi-cloud human. Uh, we could put, we could phrase it that way because you've got all this background mm -hmm. with Azure. You've had some involvement with AWS. Why GCP? What, what attracted you to take up employment working for Google? Was it, I mean, did they just back up the money truck? Was it something like that? 
I mean, I live a very lavish lifestyle. Yeah. So <laughs> finances were super big, big in the Fabergé eggs myself. So I just had this, how do I support this sort of ridiculous lifestyle? No, I mean, look, we all get free pixels and free chinchillas and stuff as part of working at Google. So that's a nice perk. But, you know, honestly, some of the appeal was I didn't know it that well. And the comfortable thing for me to do would be go work at Microsoft or something like that if they were so inclined to hire someone as ridiculous as me. But for Google, it was more... Like, I know there's amazing tech leadership, created some of the most important tech in our industry. And I know there's always this great reputation on their engineering product. And some of my unfamiliarity was actually a draw, as I kind of like being a little bit uncomfortable at work. By the way, I like watching The Office. Like, I like, <laughs> like a little discomfort. And so if I know something too well, where's the challenge? So some of it was like, I know this is amazing stuff. I'm going to feel incompetent for a long time if I work there. Wouldn't that be somewhat exciting? And honestly... A lot of this was I knew they had great tech, but kind of a emerging, maybe not great yet go to market. And I thought that could be fun to help fix. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I also embrace discomfort whenever I can and, and and seek out new experiences because that's kind of what's exciting about technology, right? It's It's the new and the shiny. I guess that's at least partly why we're here. I think... A lot of our listeners might be a little bit familiar with GCP. Maybe they've spun up a, a project to take it for a test drive or, you know, their company is investigating adopting the platform. Um, and I think that's driven in a large part because Google seen as the up and comer, the, the, the third, the third place cloud. And I, <laughs> I don't want to say that negatively, but, you know, that's kind of the <laughs> perception as it is now. But there's also a concern that I've heard from the community that Google as the larger company or alphabet has a tendency to kill products when they're not working so well. Um, and that's scary when you move into the cloud realm where your, you know, production deployment relies on this service to bring you revenue. So can, can you speak a little mm. bit to that perceived lack of distinction and how Google cloud approaches services and features? Yeah. I mean, look at the fair, from the outside in, it's a fair concern. I'm still mourning Google Reader. Like there's people <laughs> like are. us who, <laughs> right. Now, if you're mourning Google Plus, you're probably an oddball. Like I, don't, I haven't met anybody who's really like flipping out because that went away, but whatever. There's somebody out there who's just killing it on circles and, and they loved however that worked. But look, I mean, the culture here is definitely R&D and a lot of experimentation and learning and making bets. And the one thing I actually kind of like is that we don't subscribe to the sunk cost fallacy of just because we've you know plowed money into this bet, mm. let's keep it going forever. Because it's still finite. Like, yes, we're some trillion dollar company. There's, there's other really successful companies out there and we don't have unlimited resources. Like it's still, we still don't have a ton of people and a ton of money and ton of this. So where am I going to place my bets? And should I keep plowing money into something that's just okay? Or should we say like, we'd rather go bet on this next thing. So Google proper really thinks about constantly optimizing. Now Google Cloud inherits parts of the research oriented experiment part of Google, but we also sell a product. Mm -hmm. Unlike a lot of the other parts of Google where it's search and Gmail and like, I don't know, have you ever paid for maps? I don't even think you can. <laughs> like that's like not even a thing. I don't even know how you would do like pay for most Google stuff. Like a lot of this stuff is meant to be free and easy. So therefore it is experimentation UX driven. But cloud, we charge something, right? So this has to be something you can trust. And so we do behave accordingly. We don't have, I mean, you can count on on one hand, even if you're like a woodshop teacher and had four fingers cut off, like you can probably cut on one hand, count on one hand, how many products we've deprecated. And when we do super long notification, but more importantly, last year, we announced this thing called enterprise APIs, which more or less reinforced 
long-term commitments on backwards compatibility, multi-multi-year notifications if anything ever decides to even go away. Because like we're we're on in this for the long haul, right? I want to earn everyone's trust. We don't we're not owed it. So we have to earn it. Right. right. We're gonna earn it on the cloud side by being not only great engineering, but a reliable provider. So it's totally fair to come into it if you're looking at Google proper and how we've been iterating on certain products, but Google Cloud behaves a little differently because we have to sell something you you believe in. Right. That makes sense. I think that enterprise API announcement, that was really interesting. I remember when that came out, mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand what it was about at first, but then I read into it and I'm like, oh, okay, this is like a promise, essentially. Right. You're making a promise saying, if you sign a 10-year contract with us, we're going to support you and whatever you're developing on the cloud. And we've seen that, right? I mean, the last few years, we've sold multiple 10-year deals with large companies who are not going to be able to handle it if we just kill a database tomorrow. Like, of course <laughs> right. we wouldn't. Any more than Amazon would or Microsoft would. If you look across the cloud providers, we're all pretty good about not taking major services and busting them up. Like, nobody's doing that. And that's good because you have to trust this stuff. This is the next foundation for the next generation of enterprise apps. It can't be just changing constantly. That would be insane. Yeah. The original uh, cloud services for Azure is is finally, I think, being deprecated this year after being around for 10 years. And they're still going to support a different version of it that you can move to if you want to stay on like server 2012. It's 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 amazing. No, I mean, look, we're still running the original PaaS in Google App Engine. Still alive and well and doing great and a ton of people depend on it. That's been around, I mean, good Lord, half of my career at this point. I was using it in 08. Wow. So it's great. So, I mean, again, there's sometimes these reputational things and I understand it. So I'll be empathetic towards it. But I also want to help people relax and see, gosh, these are these are long haul bets. You should be able to bet on this as much as you did some of the big software you bought in the 90s. Right. And and um, in, in terms of new features and new services that are under development, mm-hmm. I think this is probably a good question for you since you are the outbound product manager. You're talking to customers. Is what's being developed internally driven by those customers or is it mostly driven by what the larger Google organization needs from the cloud services? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we're a little unique in that a lot of our initial services were just manifestations of things Google was doing to run YouTube and run all Gmail and run services. So these are really truly like cloud native services, things that aren't just things we came up with out of nowhere. They have been powering the service itself. So whether it's, you know, hey, if you're in Google Cloud, you're using the same load balancer YouTube uses. If you're using Spanner, using a database that powers much of Google proper. If you're using storage, right? It's I, I love when I hear these stories. Like when you think about it, if you and I go to YouTube right now and look up the absolute most obscure cat video possible with one view, it still loads in about a second. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. amazing. And that is the same storage subsystem you're using Google Cloud. So when you use our glacial storage, in other clouds, you have like a 15 or even multi-hour SLA for when that comes back. It's super like off storage. Ours still comes back in milliseconds. Hmm. And it has to, because how else would it work in YouTube? So <laughs> we have this amazing, amazing storage subsystem that you use as a Google Cloud customer, or things like Kubernetes, which then inspired, you know, was inspired by our Borg system, or our Istio mesh was inspired by service mesh. So a lot of foundational things did come from what we had already built to simply run a cloud scale platform in Google. But at the same time, a lot of stuff we do now is often driven by customer need, right? What we've done with a managed VMware service can kind of confidently tell you that wasn't something we were running internally, (laughs) right? Right? So I mean, that's something, hey, customers said we need a different landing zone for all this huge investment we've had in vSphere and NSX and stuff. Sounds good. Managed VMware service. 
a lot of the AI ML stuff, yes, stuff we've R and D here, but stuff that's been driven by what do customers need? What do you need from a speech API? What do you need from video stuff? And identity and access management, totally driven by enterprise need because our initial stuff was pretty light. And now that's become much more robust and a manage active directory service and things like that that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So a lot of the stuff we do now, you know, in the beginning, you need an awesome foundation. And that stuff does come from Google engineering. And frankly, we sh- we're super proud of that. But a lot of the services that add t- on top of that, a lot of that comes from exactly what customers are trying to ask for and build. And I think that's the, that's the fun part of this now is you're mixing and matching both. Mm-hmm. Google, I am robustness. It just made me chuckle, Richard, because uh, as someone who's had to dig through the APIs to find whatever the <laughs> object and the thing is I need to grant permissions for a given service, it is um, robust indeed, sir. There's a lot going on in there. That's uh, right. So it's you, its own certification. Yeah. We, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> We're talking about customer needs. One of the things customers don't at least they're not looking for higher prices, but yet not just GCP, but across the board, we've got higher prices sure. going up with cloud services. GCP did have a fairly recent announcement as we're recording this about some price increases and some changes to the pricing model. G- give us the GCP story on pricing these days. Yeah, so first I'll back up. So I ran product for a cloud company before this as well. So I've had some at least experience raising prices and decreasing prices. And so I think we all know First off, if you go back 10 years, there was a lot more vol- uh, volatility in cloud pricing, right? We were all kind of settling in what was the right price for this. You saw tons of changes a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Now, for the most part, these things are fairly static. But why do the prices change? So prices go down much more than they go up across cloud providers. I think we see that a lot. But why do they go down? Well, they go down first when you get new efficiencies, right? All of a sudden, it's cheaper to run a service. So yes, we want to pass that cost on savings on to customers. That's cool. Frankly, I've lowered prices at companies before when we're just trying to win in a market. Even though if we're going to lose money or have a lower margin, you're trying to aggressively win market share. Or frankly, sometimes you lower your price because you're just too expensive compared to your peers. Same time, some of these things go opposite, right? Sometimes you do raise prices when it's more expensive to run the service. Licensing costs went up, people costs went up, whatever. You weren't able to get the efficiencies you thought. Or Honestly, in a lot of cases, price go up among cloud providers because you're out of whack with what the other providers are offering. Mm. Why am I offering at 50% than another? Clearly, the market can tolerate that other higher price. Mm. We should be there. So prices go down for a lot of reasons. Prices go up for a lot of reasons. You know, We've adjusted a couple of things, but honestly, it's usually because there's a new service coming to market that we'd like to steer you towards. It's a better value than maybe a first-gen service. Mm-hmm. And we also have to remember cloud prices never go up wholesale. It's never like, hey, the cost of Oracle Cloud just went up 9%. Like That's never happened, right? Or Google or Amazon or Azure. It's, hey, bandwidth costs for South America just went up 3%. Storage costs for this storage maybe went up for this. But there's never like a wholesale, by the way, inflation just hit the cloud, everything's up 12%. That's never happened. I don't see that ever happening. So at the same time, I get it that we all have a lot of battle scars, right? You and I, you know, I don't, I'm looking at us. We're not all super young. So <laughs> we've been around <laughs> a little bit, right? And so we've been there yeah. where, hey, the price of that software you bought just jacked up 30% the next year and it burned you and you were stuck because you couldn't get off it. So totally understand. There's that sort of natural worry about getting stuck with something that goes up in price. We bet a ton in open source so you can port something out if you want to switch to a different cloud. We love price transparency. You can see a lot of good metering information and billing and updates. So you know what's happening. 
that's the best we can do is try to make sure a prices go down as much as possible, super transparent, and then try to be more open source based. If you do want to eject, we're not going to make that hard for you. All right. All right. Um, for folks who are completely new to GCP, because we've kind of danced around the components a little bit, but maybe we should do yeah. a, a firmer grounding in what the <laughs> components are in GCP, at least the ones that are common across the yeah. cloud providers. And I'm thinking of what I consider the big four of cloud. So that's network, compute, storage, and identity. So what what's the story in GCP with those four big categories? Yeah, everything's going to feel familiar, right? For the most part, the fundamentals, as you said, are the same, whether it is, sure, I can get VMs. Yeah, sure, table stakes. I can't believe, I mean, I could be a pretend cloud provider nowadays and still ship you VMs. Like that's <laughs> cool. Mm -hmm. As you say, I need a storage subsystem, some sort of block storage, probably an object storage, because what are you doing? It's it's 2022. <laughs> you probably have some sort of good, decent networking load balancer, maybe even some DNS, you know, some additional things, a CDN. Those things are pretty standard. Uh, you know, so those are gonna be your foundational things. As you said, identity management, everyone's got to offer databases, right? Of course, if you want a relational database, yeah, we'll be here for you. SQL Server, MySQL, Postgres, sounds good. So a lot of those things will feel familiar. I think sometimes you see differences in experience, and then there's a longer tail of different services each cloud offers, right? Like cloud is not commodity. I usually push back on that when I hear someone just talk about it. I mean, they're all the same, right? They're a cloud. Sure. I mean, In-N-Out serves burgers just like McDonald's does. They're both great companies, but those aren't the same food, right? Those are There's different experiences. There's different sort of things on their menus. And yes, the foundation, burger, fries, and drink, totally. But only getting animal style in one place i'm only getting you know whatever a mcrib whoever loves those <laughs> that's only coming from mcdonald's like there's different experiences to both so different clouds have different things and so our experience feels different i love that hey when i provision a vm in google cloud it comes back i mean a windows vm comes back in less than 30 seconds linux vm i can usually terminal in in 15 to 20 seconds which blows my mind mm -hmm. and it comes up every time which was not my experience in some other clouds so super reliable, super fast. I love that, right? Or that our VPC is global by default. I'm not setting up different regions and then trying to figure out subnets. I can't do any of that in the first place. So I love the fact that our VPC is just flat and global by default, just feels different. Storage is super fast. Our portal doesn't make you want to light yourself on fire. <laughs> like it's actually a nice portal to use. So there's a lot of things that start to feel different and the services. Right? There's some things that are, Amazon is amazing at. There's some things that Azure is awesome at. Right, And you come to Google Cloud and you say, hey, our data story is amazing. Like a serverless data warehouse with BigQuery, nothing like that. I don't provision instances and manage an infrastructure. I just literally say, here's a data set, chew on this. And when you're done, I don't pay anything anymore. Like that's bonkers. What is that? Or Spanner, which might be one of the most amazingly engineered cloud products ever in terms of a relational database that breaks cap theorem that my buddy Eric Brewer came up with here at Google, the idea that I can be a consistent, available, partition-tolerant database that spans regions and still performs with five nines and amazing perf. It's just a remarkable database. It's awesome. So our data story is amazing. People come here a lot for that and for AI. And our serverless story has gotten pretty awesome as well. So you're going to come to us for certain stuff. That's why multi-cloud's kind of taken off as certain people say, look, I love what app integration stuff in Azure. That's what I played with a ton. Logic Apps is awesome. And some of the service bus stuff, all that's amazing. Like those are great services to use. Amazon's killing it in certain areas and we're killing it in certain areas. And then you might be in a region where you can only find Oracle or IBM and you're going to pick them. So 
all the clouds are doing great stuff. There's things that are distinctly different from each one, and ours is usually around performance and experience. Often data is where people are leaning towards us. So, so okay, if you're leaning into the differentiators as performance and experience, I have heard that GCP tends to be very dev friendly. Is it performance mm -hmm. and experience that makes GCP dev friendly, or or is that actually kind of a kind of an odd descriptor from your perspective? I mean, dev. It's definitely an area we in, are intentional about is that, you know, can this feel like a developer cloud versus necessarily just something IT pros love, love an IT pro. They're awesome. I think they were a big driver in Amazon as well, because it was a very script friendly cloud. And you did a lot of stuff that felt great for, for operators. Doesn't mean developers aren't great there as well. But when you look at what we do with Firebase, you look at Google creating things like Angular and Flutter and Dart, there's a lot of dev tech that has gravity towards Google cloud and then a good experience and good SDKs and a good portal mean that I can just kind of swipe and go and use the cloud super easy. It doesn't just feel like there's a ton of friction. There's no boat anchors. I'm just kind of getting in there and shipping some stuff and seeing some value. A really good free tier that's actually free. You don't get stuck on, you know, day 31 with a giant bill. Like it's like two or three million runs of Cloud Run, our serverless container platform, before you see any charge. Like, I, I don't know, what are you building that's running more than that as a hobby project? That's awesome. So really good free tier. Devs can get started. You don't call up a salesperson to mess around with it just have fun but a lot of dev tech i mean there's millions of google developers who use things like firebase who use things like dart and flutter who use angular who's use android and so some of that does have a gravity towards our cloud we pause the podcast for a couple of minutes to introduce sponsors strong dm's secure infrastructure access platform and if those words are meaningless strong dm goes like this you know how managing servers network gear cloud vpcs databases and so on it's this horrifying mix of credentials that you saved in putty and in super secure spreadsheets and ssh keys on thumb drives and that one doc in sharepoint you can never remember where it is it sucks right strong dm makes all that nasty mess go away Install the client on your workstation and authenticate. Policy syncs, and you get a list of infrastructure that you can hit. When you fire up a session, the client tunnels to the strong DM gateway, and the gateway is the middleman. You know, it, it's a proxy architecture. So the client hits the gateway, and the gateway hits the stuff you're trying to manage, but it's not just a simple proxy. It is a secure gateway. The StrongDM admin configures the gateway to control what resources users can access. The gateway also observes the connections and logs who is doing what, database queries and kubectl commands, etc. And that should make all the security folks happy. Life with StrongDM means you can reduce the volume of credentials you are tracking. If you're the human managing everyone's infrastructure access, you get better control over the infrastructure management plane. You can simplify firewall policy. You can centrally revoke someone's access to everything they had access to with just a click. StrongDM invites you to 100% doubt this ad and go sign up for a no BS demo. Do that at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. They suggested we say no BS, and if you review their website, that is kind of their whole attitude. They solve a problem you have, and they want you to demo their solution and prove to yourself it will work. strongdm.com slash packetpushers and join other companies like Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime. strongdm.com slash packetpushers. And now, back to the podcast. Uh, say I want to do some homework on infrastructure as code and, uh, you know, mm. work on some of that, that stuff, say with, I don't know, Pulumi, let's say. How easy is it for me to blow up the free tier and all of a sudden I get a big bill? Or are there throttles in place that uh, can help me make sure yeah. I don't screw up? 
No, it's a good question. I believe we have like your, I don't believe we even asked for a credit card when you first start. So that there's a very clear opt-in when the time comes to, hey, you're about to start doing stuff. Be careful. And again, there's still, and every cloud has the horror stories that show up on Twitter of I woke up and I have a $12,000 bill. Like some of those things are tough to prevent because you want to enable self-service that says, I want you to be able to do all kinds of stuff. And you don't want to have to send in an email at three in the morning because you hit your storage limit. You just want to go. So it's really interesting to see how we're going to keep getting better. We have to get better. But how do we keep getting better at kind of taking off the reins so you can do whatever you want, but letting you know sooner that you're just about to spike, right? So you don't see that cost. So we do a good job of making sure you are opting in before you start to really party on in the account. (laughs) But then even once you're really in and you've given us a credit card, how do we still prevent you from maybe doing something you didn't want? That's still tough. Like I see every cloud still kind of struggle with that because there's no perfect solution quite yet. There's price monitoring you can put in place and so Mm -hmm. on, but it's still, there's enough subtleties to it and enough dependencies that getting it right is difficult. And it's not real time. I think that's the biggest knock against most clouds is because we're so aggregating so much data constantly that you might know, not know the second you're consuming too much stuff. There might be a two or three hour lag or whatever mm-hmm. it is as I combine data from 100 services you're using and then figure out that you've busted your budget. So every cloud's dealing with that. It's just a lot of data you're sifting through. We're going to keep getting better and probably better than anyone can ever do on-prem but it's still a hard computer science project. Yeah, absolutely. And, and ideally, you don't want to interrupt anybody who's in the middle of a big project trying to do something right. and you're like, oh, our AI detected some cost anomaly, so we're going to shut down this instance to stop you from shooting yourself in the foot. And you're like, no, no, no. I'm running this large-scale simulation and I need that to run in 100%. now. <laughs> or it was Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and of course I expected to see an extra 10,000 compute instances. Hey, you just shut down my store and my business is over. Yeah, like there can't be again, you can't be too smart here. That's the challenge is I need to give you the right tools and the right ability to set limits and caps and evolve those sorts of things. But I can't get too smart here. Yeah, yeah. I want to back up to the developer question again, Mm -hmm. because one thing that I noticed is when I in the olden times went to user groups in person, that was a thing we used to (laughs) be able to do. I know what a concept. (laughs) It's funny. So I would attend the Azure, the local Azure user group, and I go to the AWS mm-hmm. one. And and most of the people in those groups were either grumpy Windows admins or grumpy mm-hmm. Linux admins, depending on Azure or AWS. And then I was invited to go speak at a GCP user group, and it was like all developers. They even called mm-hmm. it like the Google Cloud Developers user group. And that was a bit of a culture shock for me. And I'm just curious... Is there more that GCP should be doing to court IT ops folks, or is it more if you Mm. get the developers first, then the IT ops will be dragged along behind them? (laughs) Those are both good, uh, both good observations. I didn't know where you were going to go with that one. So that's (laughs) it. That was a good conclusion. Uh, So yeah, we do lean more developer again, I think because there's just natural developer gravity. And frankly, we're not going to be the most familiar things for an ops team. Like, I don't know, is that super edgy to say? Like, you're not plugging this into all your system center stuff. It's not, you know, if you're using Amazon, sure, you've already gotten yourself familiar with that over because they were first to market. Microsoft plays really well on their familiarity, especially for ops people. And so mm-hmm. that's a natural place for them. I'm always going to be a bit of a foreign entity in an enterprise, right? It's just you never ran anything Google in your data center for the most part, <laughs> unless you had that weird search appliance from 10 years ago. I remember so, that. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. So I mean, it's just there's not a natural affinity. It's not a. It's usually neutral. It's rarely do I come across negative. It's just like yeah, I've heard of you all, but I don't have anything that looks like your stuff. Now I'm running Kubernetes. Ah, oh, you're already running our stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm running this. I'm doing TensorFlow jobs. I'm doing all these. Oh, you, you realize gRPC and TensorFlow and Kubernetes and all these things in your data center? That's us, right? Oh, that's right. So sometimes there's natural affinities that help us with ops people. But to your point, most of this is still developers who are then creating gravity that becomes more of a standard at the company. And again, a lot of people are choosing Google in general because there's also a business affinity, right? We've seen these deals where you make a giant YouTube bet along with Google Cloud Mm. or look at uh, Ford, which is a big thing with Android Auto and then also jumped on the cloud train. And so it becomes actually a top-down business choice versus cloud has often been an IT ops up choice. I think we're now we're seeing like, hey, developer preference or business marketing lead who goes, I'm spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on ads. Shouldn't I be chewing my data in BigQuery? Yeah, you probably should be. So mm. it's interesting to see it's not just the stranglehold that sometimes IT ops has had on some of the tech choices because developers are showing their preferences. Business leaders are saying these are strategic choices, not just bits and bytes, but like, what am I betting on as a corporation? That's a, I think that's a cool, interesting change. Mm. That, that is interesting. In the, the, the business side of it had not popped into my head because you look at the big three clouds almost as interchangeable with, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if you're a big Microsoft shop, yeah, Azure's a natural fit for a lot of that. Right. And everybody's using AWS and, you know, and, and Google's been so, somewhat in third place, if you will. Mm-hmm. But now to position that like, hey, we use Google for these other things. Should we also be using Google Cloud too? Does that make sense? And strategically from a business perspective, yeah, it is going to make sense for certain organizations. And when you're an engineer and tend to think of everything in terms of technology, you just that thought may not pop into your head. But that is that is an important and relevant thing. Now, another important. Uh, interesting observation here about how GCP positions multi-cloud, Richard, is that they acknowledge it's a thing. It actually exists. <laughs> some of the other cloud providers don't even multi-cloud. Yeah. There are other clouds. No, but GCP does. Well, why? Why would you uh, acknowledge that? What's the what's the business benefit for GCP? Yeah. So let me go. I'll say the cynical one first because it's the more <laughs> obvious one. Whenever you're not first, you encourage multi multi. Right. I mean, first, let's be cynical. Right. If we were literally the first one, why would you say, hey, you should use other stuff, too? You would. And I'm just being, being honest with you. Right. Like in a scheme of things, first of all, that wouldn't even end in your head that much. If you're leading in any industry, why do you encourage people to look around? Nope. Stay all in. But at the same time, more practically, when we when we look at this, a lot of the Google heritage has been multi-cloud infrastructure. If you think of like we shipped Kubernetes before we monetized it. Right. Here's an open source project. This runs everywhere. Hey, here's all these different open source projects that were by nature used all over the place. We were always used to like just shipping ideas that everyone was using, right? This wasn't a, we always shipped proprietary stuff. We often talked about that. So some of our heritage is just, it's natural to just open source stuff and share stuff. And so that made it more natural. But then as more customers came to us, especially now, I just did a couple of briefings in in the Valley this week before I came home. Shops are saying, look, we're not going to put everything in anybody. It doesn't matter even if our first choice, because everyone made their first cloud choice five to eight years ago. Totally cool. Now they've gotten somewhat competent in that thing and they get some confidence going, okay, I kind of know what I'm doing. I know Pulumi or Terraform. I know how to do containers and CI, CD. It's not super terrifying to use now best of breed in other clouds or Mm -hmm. look, I just did some mergers and acquisition and I picked up a shop that's using Google Cloud. It's going to cost me so much more 
to move them or retrain all the people. I'm just going to keep them there and it's fine. So some of this is organic and we've seen it where companies are just naturally doing this sort of thing because they've done mergers and acquisitions. They're using YouTube. So they also use BigQuery or they're using ads and they're doing analytics. So they've just naturally become multi-cloud. And then now some are being more strategic and saying, hey, for risk purposes or whatever, we want to spread that around. So we just noticed that years ago, kind of leaned into that with what we did with Anthos. We're now doing it with BigQuery where I can run our premium engine on Amazon and Azure as a managed service and just talk to my Azure data lake, Hmm. talk to my data sitting in S3 all through the same BigQuery interface without ever moving the data. It's where it sits. So you've seen this cool trend where we're actually trying to say, centralize your control plane, but keep your data plane wherever you are on premises in another cloud. And that's weird and wild. And a lot of people are really clicking with that because I do want to centralize something. I can't just simply use locality in each place. It's too much maintenance and operations. So I still might centralize a control plane for all my logs, maybe some identity stuff. Maybe my management of Kubernetes clusters with Anthos, maybe for my analytics with BigQuery, but I'm still not going to centralize literally all the data because of cost and complexity. I think that's pretty wild. So it's not just multi-cloud, like just jam stuff all over, but maybe also rethinking, hey, I still want Google Cloud to be your anchor, even if all of your data isn't sitting here. So we're not just literally saying run everything everywhere. I think some software vendors are doing that. (laughs) They run our platform on each cloud. I get Mm -hmm. it. That's the play. Our play isn't to do that. Our play is to centralize at least the control plane with us. I'm going to interrupt the podcast for a minute here to talk about IT training. You remember the ransomware attack on the gas pipeline last year? It caught your attention, probably caught mine. There's a key thing here. Cybersecurity professionals are in demand to prevent that kind of thing, but there are not enough humans out there to fill all the positions. There's over 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a cybersecurity professional if you get some training, some online training. It is never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. IT Pro TV has you covered for your training. They cover everything. CompTIA to Cisco to EC Council to Microsoft. They, they've got all of it, including the cloudy stuff. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. And, and the way they present the information, you know, some presenters are like, they're reading from the book and they're super boring. That is not IT Pro TV's format at all. They use engaging hosts. that They're going to present the information in a talk show format and really keep it interesting. And they do it live. They, they're live every day. And then once they recorded that live show, it goes studio to web in 24 hours. As you're digging through their website, looking for content, all the courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, job role. You can find what you're looking for without a lot of trouble. And then when you pick the thing and you're ready to go, you can stream IT Pro TV's courses, uh, either the live stuff or the on-demand stuff from anywhere in the world via whatever platform you like, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or there's apps on iOS or Android. Learn IT, pass your certs, and then get a great job, maybe in cybersecurity, with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash day2cloud for 30% off all plans. Use promo code cloud at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash day2cloud. Day2cloud is day, the number two, cloud, and then use promo code cloud at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash day2cloud and use promo code cloud at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's get back to the podcast. 
One term I've heard coined recently, and I, I, I debate its utility, but I've heard it is mm-hmm. super cloud. And it's kind of this <laughs> like that. idea where each cloud is going to be so commodified and have enough standard parts where I can just build across mm-hmm. all these clouds and treat them almost as one, as opposed mm-hmm. to the more differentiation angle that, that you've been talking about. Do you, do you think that concept has legs or is it just, you know, somebody needed a new term and they threw it out there in, into the ether? It feels well, the term part feels like the latter, like everyone just wants to coin their thing that they can <laughs> now be a LinkedIn influencer. So I get that. I, I don't subscribe to the idea that the public clouds are going to keep commoditizing and then we're just going to depend on this whole new class of vendors to actually provide the differentiation layer across clouds. I think that's selling the clouds too short because mm-hmm. at some point I'm not going to just want to be a commodity and we are not now. So we're going to keep shipping great data, AI, app builder experiences. Now, at the same time, I love the fact that I can use Confluent Cloud and Kafka across all the clouds. Awesome. I can do MongoDB Atlas across clouds. Amazing. Right? I can do the same thing with Splunk or other things. So you are still going to have cross-cloud kind of layers you stripe across them. Makes sense. Now, do I think most people should be building apps that span clouds? No. I don't think that's a great pattern. Right? Do I want to have my front end in Amazon, my back end in Google, and then my messaging layer in Azure? Not unless I'm doing resume-driven development. Why in the <laughs> world would I do that? That's a terrible idea, right? Latency will be awful. Ops will be awful. I'm going to have security leakages. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a customer who I'm showing an example of. I still might say, hey, I've bet entirely on Amazon SQS. Okay. So I still may be talking to that from Google Cloud or Azure because that's part of just the distributed system. And that just might be the way I've architected the system. But I wouldn't go into it going, my CDN's in this cloud, my databases in this. I wouldn't intentionally architect a new app that way. Most people are doing multi-cloud by saying, what's the right cloud for this workload? And I'm going to use Amazon for this workload. I'm going to use Azure for this workload, Google Cloud for this one. And to be clear, absolutely no one I've ever spoken to in two years here is saying a third, a third, a third. Nobody does that. You still pick a primary, and then you have one or two secondary clouds. And so we're all still jostling to be a primary. Nobody's just splitting workloads evenly across clouds. That's nuts. But you are seeing most people, it's a rare company who's making a single bet on a single cloud. You're in the minority at this point. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what I've observed from just the different folks I've talked to when I'm doing training sessions or, or just mm-hmm. you know doing some consulting work. Um, I want to shift a little bit from the multi-cloud angle and, and bring things yeah. on-prem a little bit. Let, mm-hmm. let, let's bring it on home to uh, the hybrid and edge story, because that seems like a huge area for cloud growth. I mean, I don't know if we can still call it cloud when it's running on-prem, we can call it fog or whatever, but (laughs) I'm curious to know, what what investments is GCP making in that arena to embrace and support the edge and hybrid deployments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you called it hybrid versus on-prem necessarily, because, you know, on-prem, I don't, I don't really want to just ship software that just lives as software on-prem. Why Mm. would I do that as a cloud provider? Like it still should be cloud connected. So Mm -hmm. it's a hybrid story, right? It's saying I'm trying to bring certain things in parity. I'm doing DevOps or site reliability engineering across public and private. Like I'm trying to think about that differently. So we think of hybrid more than on-prem, right? I don't want to just ship disconnected software. There's vendors who do that rock on. Our best value is going to be in cloud connected stuff. So as we look at today, so our Anthos product, I can use it to run fleets of containerized apps in Google Cloud at scale, but I can also then take GKE, our Kubernetes engine, which I will happily argue is the best Kubernetes in the public cloud. 
I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that is Google, so we shouldn't say best and stuff, whatever. Uh, it is awesome. Uh, I can take GKE and I can run it on Azure as a as software on Azure as a service. Mm-hmm. I can run it on Amazon and I can run it on bare metal or vSphere. So we have a lot of companies who say, like, I like the Kubernetes model from GKE. I like the consistent interface, I like the idea of connected service mesh to across all these environments. But I want to run this in my data center or I want to run this in the back of a fast service restaurant or I want to run this on an oil rig, or I want to do whatever. So you get these environments where you're putting like satellite clusters all over the place in these hybrid setups, which is pretty cool, right? And you start to reach into edge as well, where you're thinking of retail edge, branch office, manufacturing floor, all really cool stuff. So we're actually pushing hard. I think all the clouds are doing a good job of saying, how do we extend now? Just when you thought you got comfortable consolidating in cloud, now we're going to go back and push back to your edge. Sorry about that. So I guess that's good because that's what our customers are asking us for, right? No one was ever going to say our entire world's going to be US East one. Like, hey, that's a terrible choice. But just you wouldn't live in one data center region anyway. But now we're saying, no, we still want to move people closer to the data, right? I want to make sure if there's an outage in a region, I can still have my service provided if I'm a cable provider. Mm-hmm. I don't want everything having to always go back to some mothership region or location. I want to federate that a bit. So we're shipping things like, you know, Anthos at the edge. We have our Google distributed cloud, which is hardware, software services, Google distributed cloud edge just shipped. So I can drop infrastructure fully managed by Google, everything from patching your Kubernetes clusters and updating an operating system, drop that anywhere I want. And so we are making some of that bet. There's a whole ecosystem there around good edge stuff, whether that's, you know, data ingest and data management and remote management of fleets and all that stuff. Some of that's us, some of that's partners. But I think clearly that's a big part of the future. I'm not yet on. I've seen some predictions like, hey, the edge is going to be bigger than the public cloud in so many years. <laughs> I don't know. I'm terrible at predictions. That seems like maybe a stretch, but I do think you're going to see that become more prevalent. And if I can use the same ops ideas and development ideas also for edge, you tell me. I don't know too many devs today who know how to deploy to 15,000 locations. That seems hard. Mm-hmm. That's not just a Jenkins job that does that, like that right? I, don't, I think it's different. So how do I think of deploying at that scale, managing at that scale? I think we're going to have to evolve some of our tooling and, and approaches. I think that's awesome. But I'm not just assuming that because you learned cloud, now that I know how to deploy to some massive remote edge, that seems like an evolved skill set. So we're all going to grow together here. I think it's mostly transferable skills, but we're going to learn new stuff. I think that makes it awesome. Right. It's definitely going to be a slightly different operational model when it's so distributed mm-hmm. and you don't have this centralized data center that you're you're interacting with. Um, and I agree. I don't know about some of the analyst predictions on the size of Edge, <laughs> and they don't know either. So I think we're all just trying to figure it out as best we can. Uh, so if folks who are listening, you know, a lot of our listenership are are IT ops type people, not not as many mm-hmm. developers, though I know you're out there. I know you're out there. Um, <laughs> if they're curious about getting started with Google Cloud, what what are some recommendations you would make about a good place to get started or a project they can kind of kick the tires on when it comes to running in Google Cloud? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say there's a few things that would probably surprise your listeners about us, if I were to say. So and when so when you think of things to run. So first off, we're pretty good at Windows and .NET. Now, that might be a, like mind-blowing. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, clearly, I have one cloud as my default. Totally fair. I get it. We're actually pretty good at that. Our Windows environments in GKE are pretty great. 
you know, as I mentioned, how fast we can bring stuff up and manage it. We have managed Active Directory. We have managed SQL Server, for instance. So we're actually pretty good for our migration tooling. Today, I actually did it last weekend. I can take a .NET 3.5 app on an IIS instance in Windows Server 2012, and we have a tool where I can just click a button generally, run it through a process, and turn it into a container image, mm. and then run it on GKE, which is really cool. So I can take my old legacy .NET apps, containerize it to a fraction of the size and cost, and run that in a GKE cluster. So we have some pretty nice tooling for containerizing Windows, running it as VMs, whatever. So first off, just because it's a Windows workload doesn't mean we don't run it. That might surprise some people. <laughs> uh, same with serverless. So if I'm looking at the first workload, look, kudos to Amazon for kind of inventing serverless. We can argue if Paz was the first serverless, but let's not be pedantic. <laughs> like what they did with scale to zero compute was awesome. Lambda is great. And what we've actually kind of continued to move forward is more serverless containers, which I'm actually kind of pumped about because while traditional function as a service is great, I wouldn't contend that nobody on-prem had a single workload that just ran in Azure Functions or Lambda or things, right? It was a refactor. Right. It's a different method signature, code base, like nothing just ran there. But when I have serverless containers like Google Cloud Run, I can run a WebSphere app. I can run all kinds of apps. I'm not just running like methods. I'm running like systems in Cloud Run, still scales to zero, still has concurrency up to you know a ton of concurrent requests per container. We just launched it with 32 gigs of memory. That's as much as my freaking laptop. And that's even a huge laptop. So I can have huge instances, Linux containers, scale to zero. So our serverless story is pretty awesome, especially for full apps. People may not think of that, but that's a great first workload for some. Hmm. Just get in here. I don't even have to know containers. I can literally just do G Cloud Run Deploy. It'll take my source code, package it up for me, containerize it, run it. So super easy to get started, but it's actually a really great way to get started. Don't start with big clusters. Don't start with big complex stuff. Push an app. Hmm. See how it feels. You know, Attach it to a simple NoSQL database. See how that feels. We do a lot of nice integration stuff. So serverless is one of the best ways to start with Google Cloud. Don't start with the most complex nine-tier architecture <laughs> with background <laughs> jobs and, and like, oh gosh, like don't you know make it so difficult. Start Richard, with an to, app, experiment. To, to grease the skids and make it easy for me to get that one app off the ground and going on GCP. Tutorials, yeah. documentation database, where do I need to read? Yeah, so you'll see pretty good documentation from us. One thing I love in our docs is when you look at a command and it'll say, hey, something, you know, run this command. All of the sort of, tokens where it might be your cluster name, your whatever are editable in the docs. So I can mm. literally click a button and go, hey, what's the name of my service instance? Cool. And then copy that command, which is for my thing. We even embed our cloud shell in our docs. So you could be looking at our docs going, oh, I'd love to run that command. Okay, then click the button and it'll literally <laughs> open up the shell in the docs and you'll run it against your Google Cloud environment. So super easy in context stuff. So go to docs, run through the really simple tutorials, just kind of get a good feel for it. Again, with these free tiers, there's probably nothing going on to your, your bill, which is great. So yeah, get into Docs, download our C SDK. We got tons of local emulators. You want to emulate Spanner on your desktop? Awesome, we got that. Firestore, uh, Kubernetes with Minikube, Cloud Run, other things. So lots of good emulators. Download the SDK, read the Docs, experiment with some of this stuff. That's the best thing. Don't. I'm not going to plug a book. Like Just use it. <laughs> right. Start using some stuff, right? Just run a basic <laughs> command, get a feel for it. Our console's really nice to use. I really, I mean, I'm in it every day doing stuff. I'm just about to tweet a few things about it when we get done the podcast. I learned something new today. So kind of, we're a good hands-on cloud. Get get in there. Don't overstudy. Like just yeah. start trying some stuff out. 
That's definitely the way that I learned best is by, you know, trying hands on failing at something a bunch of times and then finally you know Absolutely. figuring out the right command or, or the right <laughs> series of incantations that you need to <laughs> spin up the application. Well, this has been a great yeah, conversation, uh, Richard. If folks want to follow you and find out what you're up to, uh, are you active on Twitter, LinkedIn? What, what's your preferred platform of choice? Yeah, if you want a full dose of this, uh, you can hang out on, on Twitter at, at rsaroder and uh, follow me there. Saroder.com is where I blog at least once a month, just things I'm learning. And uh, yeah, no, I'd love to connect with folks. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Just this is uh, the best time in my 20 something years to build and run software. Like I'm having a blast with this stuff. So doesn't mean it's not more complicated and there's more stuff to learn, but let's learn together. Like that's what this should be about. Awesome. Well, we'll include links in the show notes for all that information. Richard Sroder, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. Yeah, this was a blast. Thank you. Absolutely. And hey, listeners out there, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show, or you can fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Hey, remember, we've got a tech bite with HashiCorp coming up where we talk about consoles. So don't hit the skip on your podcast app just yet. There's more good info to come. Welcome to this sponsored tech bite with our fine friends over at HashiCorp. Today's topic is a level set for their console product. Maybe you've heard the name in passing. Perhaps you took it for a test drive a couple of years ago, or you could even be using it today as a storage solution for Vault. The point is, console has changed and evolved significantly from its humble beginnings. And with us today is Van Fan to bring us up to date on what console is doing today. Van, welcome to the show. Let's start with the million dollar question. For folks who aren't familiar, what exactly is console? Hello, Natalie, and thank you for having me on this podcast. Happy to be here, first of all, and looking forward to our conversation. So yes, to answer your, your great first question, uh, the million dollar question that comes up quite a bit when I talk to customers is, you know, what is console? And to really set the context, you know, I wanted to pro provide some, some background. You and I and many people know that you know, customers are moving to the cloud and migrating to the cloud. We see a lot of modernizations happening with applications and adopting microservices as part of that journey. Uh, we also see the adoption of multi-cloud, including the private cloud on-prem as part of this long-term strategy. And so whether that's by design or on accidents, through acquisitions, um, you know, there's there's this, you know, the end result is that multi-cloud is, is is the future, right? And so multi adopting the cloud is great for innovation and for lots of other reasons. Uh, but the shifting of the, the operating model between you know managing things that are static on-prem at the data center where you have physical hardware, monolithic applications, static IP addresses, known perimeters to something in the public cloud that's, you know, where your resources like your compute, your services, your IPs are all dynamic and ephemeral. This shift can be very challenging and managing and straddling between the two models is very challenging. So end of the day, in a nutshell, and you're kind of a long-winded way to answer your question, in a nutshell, consoles are here to provide some consistency across that, right? Uh, console, think of console as a uh, a service networking platform that provides a, a consistent set of workflows to help secure and connect services using a consistent single control point across these multiple public and private clouds. So, you know, when we're talking about these workflows, they include, you know, discovering services, applying uh, service identities as part of that to replace these ephemeral IP addresses as, you know, this control unit that is used for enforcement, right? The new part of the workflow is securing services and ensuring customers can get to zero trust. 
trust and enabling traffic shaping with our, our service mesh? Do we also include um, you know, automating services uh, and automating security and then providing access to services through an API gateway? So the culmination of everything I just said, again, very long-winded. I hope, I hope it's clear, but the culmination of all these cap- capabilities really makes console a, a unique control point for managing network services across clouds and, and runtimes. So, so Van, it feels like console is Kubernetes, but all of the things you'd have to bolt on to Kubernetes to to create what the console solution is, console's already got it all. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, console leverages Kubernetes. Kubernetes has, yeah, you're right. It has a lot of these built-in functionalities, but, but console go, expands further beyond that, right? You have you know, Kubernetes there to, to bring up you know, apps and services, but there's lots of aspects that are, are still missing in terms of security and connecting services between them in a consistent way. And, and we go beyond Kubernetes, go into VMs and, and into ECS and other different runtimes. So it's not just uh, you know focus on Kubernetes, but it is you know a big part part of it, yes. So if I, and I have been in the t- around the tech industry for a while, I'm old Van, that's what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> there are, the best products uh, are the ones that solve legitimate challenges that are felt by practitioners, right? If I've got a thing and you have the thing that solves my, my pain that I have dealing with it, that's the thing that I want. Uh, so what challenges does console address? Why do I buy it? What pain am I fixing? Great question. And we, we talked to lots of customers and we have, you know, we see these re- recurring questions, recurring themes that come up and it comes down, it's broken down to these four things that we, we see quite often or hear quite often that customers ask. And the first one being, hey, I have, you know, customers want to know what are all my services in my organization, right? They, they have this, you know, their organization and they have these services that are spread across different teams, different BUs, different networks, between different clouds, between on prem data centers, between different runtimes, VMs, Kubernetes, ECS, AKS, EKS, right? All sorts of ways to, to run their services. And, you know, so these services are, all, are also potentially moving from on prem to the cloud, right? So it's kind of dynamic and, and, and a moving target. So, uh, and the challenges are even more exacerbated in the public cloud where, um, you know, the, these services and IP addresses are, are ephemeral. They come and go all the time. So keeping track of everything is very challenging. Is You can't do it the way you used to, uh, you know, when you have a static data center, right? Um, so customers want this way of being able to track and consistently know about all their services, where they are, what their respective IPs are, are they healthy, are they online, any, ac- any actions are needed by them. So console provides you know, this, this uh, service discovery and service registry capability to be able to keep track and be the single source of truth for everything, right? Well, it's not like this is a new problem, right, Van, in that uh, even when it was a static data center, it, you didn't know what all the applications were running in that data center. I oh, think yeah. it just becomes even more challenging now that you can spin up workloads uh, up and down uh, anywhere. It becomes a little harder to track things because they can they can move around uh, like whack-a-mole. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. Even even in like the the static world where you know there are teams that would reach out to me for, hey, what, what are your apps and services running? I'm like, I don't have time for this. I don't have time to tell you about what's all my IPs and all the things I'm running, right? So it's just, yeah, it's, it's that much worse now that it is, you know, in the cloud. Yeah. But to, to your other question or your original question, you know, we have, uh, so that's, that's the first challenge customers have, right? We have these other three one, three other challenges that they bring up to us all the time where they also want to ensure that their services are secure. So, um, you know, obviously security is top of mind. So they want to know how, how do they ensure that the services that are on their network 
are, are, are secure when they communicate over the network. You know, obviously with microservices and services just spread all over the place, the network's a lot more busy, a lot more chatter. So they want to be able to ensure that services when they communicate are, are encrypted and consistently you know, enforce across the whole organization for that as well. So console provides a service mesh to do that and to enable zero trust for customers. Uh, for that, for that, that provides aspect. a service mesh. Is that um, like you're leveraging Kubernetes for some of the console stuff? Are you leveraging another open source project for the service mesh? So for the service mesh, we are we are using Envoy. So that mm-hmm. is you know another open source um, project that uh, is you know fairly popular and fairly well known. Uh, and you know we have our own uh, control plane, but we are leveraging Envoy to perform a lot of these uh, zero trust capabilities, right? You know, ensuring that certificates are exchanged and authenticating and authorizing everything is kind of enforced through Envoy. Got it. So I'm going to assume then, with all of these nuts and bolts, I can I can automate this thing, yeah? Because I'm I'm going to guess that's another thing the customers want. It's what I want. Yeah, uh, definitely. And you know, automation is is something that um, you know everyone wants, uh, and you know there's lots of benefits. Obviously, for uh, it makes workflows a lot more efficient. It removes any potential manual error that can occur. Uh, it it brings services up online much more quickly, making available much more quickly to be consumed by other teams and things like that. So we have this other capability. Uh, we call it network infrastructure automation, um, but it really it helps drive automation with network devices on uh, in a customer's environment. Okay, when you say network devices, you're you're not talking about just the services running in Kubernetes. Are you talking about possibly physical devices or virtual appliances? Yeah, that that's precisely it, right? You have uh, you have services that come online, and you know just because they are available doesn't mean they you know people can or other services or other teams can reach them. There's other network devices that need to be. Uh, adjusted uh, or or updated to accommodate these new services. So that's exactly what I mean. Uh, these IP addresses have to be applied to these network devices to be reachable by other services. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense as well. And I think there's a, there's a final fourth challenge uh, to, to get into around being able to control traffic consistently. Yeah, ex- yeah. So you know, we talked about the service mesh, and you have network. You know, shaping capabilities for all services within the service mesh, right? Uh, but there's also a desire to have, you know, external clients connect to those uh, services within the service mesh as well. So uh, customers, you know, there's lots of AP, you know ways of doing that. We provide an API gateway. And the nice thing is that it's consistent uh, within, it's part of the whole console solution. So the, the way you manage and control traffic within the service mesh is going to be consistent with how you manage and control traffic for external clients to want to reach those services as well. So Van, I have one one qualifying question here to help me understand what console is not. Because I was conflating it as like a, a, a container launch platform, if you will, like, like Kubernetes is. That's not what console is, is it? No, uh, it, it uses Kubernetes. It uses different runtimes and different orchestration tools that you know that happen to be running services. But no, it's not that. It it provides a lot of um, a, a lot of uh, services around Kubernetes and around your services to enable them to connect yeah. in a consistent way and in a secure way. Uh, and it provides other things like uh, you know service discovery. So it's all this this larger platform that provides a lot more capabilities than than just what Kubernetes provides, right? Right. That That's much larger than my original understanding of console. When I tried it out, I don't know, three, four years ago, I really thought of it as, well, first as a key value store because I was using it with Vault. 
And then I kind of got the feeling that, oh, it can do some DNS stuff and maybe some service discovery. But you provided us like four big challenges that it's helping to solve. Now, my understanding is that there's a brand new version of console that got released very recently, 1.12. Can you tell us what is special that has enhanced what console can do in that release? Yeah, so uh, before we get into 1.12, to kind of go back to what you said earlier about how console has evolved, absolutely. It's definitely uh, evolved from the early days of being a KV store uh, and you know, in you know, a service registry, right, that we already talked about. It's gone beyond that to provide zero trust. Uh, and uh, part of the zero trust thing that we're, you know that we are providing is, is this service identity that I mentioned earlier. And the service identity is really important because you know it becomes this control point, right, to be able to um, to authorize services and, and determine whether a service A can talk to service B rather than using IP addresses to determine that, right. Um, it can then use uh, you can use that service identity uh, to be able to authenticate services um, and then further encrypt it with MTLS, right? So it becomes a really important point uh, to get to zero trust, right? And so now uh, to your to your point about uh, 1.12 is that uh, we are enhancing this this position even further to help customers get closer to zero trust by integrating. With uh, with vaults, right? Vault provides zero trust for secrets management, so we want to naturally marry console and leverage a lot of those capabilities with Vault. So, uh, so we're able to use Vault for its PKI engine to generate TLS certificates for console's control plane and data plane, which is uh, you know a pretty big deal uh, to be able to leverage that Vault's capabilities for that. Uh, and in addition to that, we can have auto rotation of these certificates on the control plane and the data plane. So in the end, it really reduces the burden of uh, the administrator having to you know, manually rotate these certificates and, and rotate uh, you know, everything that, you know, on top of everything else they have to do, right? And so when you can have auto rotation happen online and automatically enables more frequent rotations, uh, and then that leads you to having better zero trust practices, right? Uh, and then the last thing with this 1.12 is that you know not just TLS certificates are stored on on Vault, but all of our other secrets as well that are pertinent to deploying console or or running an operating console like ACL tokens and and other uh, you know, encryption keys and things like that all are, are all stored on Vault as well. So it's much more secure than just leveraging Kubernetes secrets uh, as your secret store. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a lot of stuff that you threw in the release. It seems like Vault integration is one of the main themes of that release. Is there anything else that was really important or notable in the 1.12 release that you, that you want to bring up? So there's other notable features that we, you know, we probably won't have any time to, uh, to really dig deep into this, but, you know, going back to that, uh, the automation portion that we discussed earlier really is, is a big differentiator for console, right? We, you know, console is a single source of truth through the fact that we do service discovery and we know about all the services across all the different clouds that we talked about earlier. It can now trigger events and work with Terraform uh, and integrate with Terraform so that you know if something happens on the on the network where you have more services or scaled services or retired services, console Terraform Sync uh, can react and can automate and configure your network devices to reflect those additional changes with uh, your services that console is you know tracking. So. Okay. Okay. So you've increased the integration with Vault and with Terraform. Sounds like we're making a we're making a nice stew here. Um, hmm. Now, my understanding of console is that it's free and it's open source. 
but there is an enterprise version for folks who have to manage things at scale. Uh, if people who are listening want to take console out for a test drive or just understand more about their feet about the feature set, where can they go? Where would you suggest they they go on the interwebs to check that out? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of content, you know, from us or even from you know YouTube videos, but you can start with going to our website. We have a console.io uh, page where there's lots of use cases, case studies, technical documentation. If you want to you know, test drive it out, we have um, our, our, our learn tutorials, learn.hashcope.com is where you can go and just play with all the different capabilities and, and test out the, the functions and, and features of it. Uh, and lastly, I will want to will mention that we have um, you know, HTTP console as well, where you know, with a managed console service and customers can also try that for free. Excellent. Uh, how can the audience follow you on the internet if they want to hear more from you? If you have, do you have a, a handle or or a blog that they can go to? Uh, unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> it's something I've been <laughs> wanting to set up, but haven't gotten around to it. Uh, I guess my, my LinkedIn is an easy way for them to to reach, uh, which I'm sure you will you can provide um, on your website. Excellent. We will include that in the show notes along with the learn guides and everything else about console. Van Fan, thank you so much for being a guest on today's Tech Byte. And thank you to HashiCorp for sponsoring this Tech Byte. This is how Ethan and I feed our families after all. And hey, thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.